This morning's scripture comes from Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Matthew 28, if you will. We'll be looking at this passage this morning as we conclude our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Imagine a, a world at war, a city under occupation by an evil regime. I think of Pearl Harbor Day, that memory's not too far off. But imagine a world at war where a city is under occupation. The people plundered and imprisoned, hopeless and hurting. And then imagine that the city is liberated, that the enemy is defeated. The battle is over. And the general, before moving on to the next city, leaves a team of soldiers on the ground with the specific charge to go throughout the city and announce to the prisoners that the battle was over and they have been set free. Imagine once again that a year later, the general receives word that many of the citizens were still imprisoned in the city. Not that there was still fighting. They had simply never been informed that the battle was over. And so the general shows up to find out what in the world is going on here. And the leading officers meet him and they are thrilled to see the general pay them a visit. They can't wait to show him everything that they've accomplished over the last year. They begin with a tour of the new Liberation Command facility. Took a while to, to raise the money and get it built, but it is equipped with all of the bells and whistles of military strategy and surveillance. From here, they can watch the enemy's every move and plan the liberation of this city. Next, uh, he sh they showed him the new school for post-wartime liberation. There were over a 100 soldiers enrolled learning all the, the strategy and, and the latest in post-war negotiations. They finished that tour in time to catch the weekly Freedom Rally, where all the soldiers gathered together to learn about what happened in the war and to celebrate the victory. They sang songs of liberation and freedom. They, they prayed for the liberation of the prisoners. But that wasn't all they wanted to show him. They'd also invested in a number of important needs in the community. They had classes to, to curb the illiteracy problems, and so many schools had been closed during the war, and they set up several local food pantries and offered grief counseling to families who lost loved ones during the war. The officers were so proud of all that they had done that they were somewhat shocked to hear the general's response. 
you have failed your mission. You neglected the main thing. You had one job, one central charge, your primary commission to go and announce to the prisoners freedom and liberty, to let them know that they could be free. They did a lot of good things, but they missed the main thing. They failed their mission. The parallels between that little story and the church today should be pretty obvious. What would Jesus say if he showed up today and saw our buildings, toured our seminaries, attended our worship services, looked upon all our humanitarian efforts, but found that no one was actually announcing to those still enslaved in sin that the war had been won, their freedom was secured, if they will but renounce their sin and trust in Christ as Savior and King. The church can give itself to many good things. In fact, all of those things, gathering for worship, training leaders, loving our neighbors, all of those are acts of obedience to God. They're not secondary or peripheral. They're important. But we cannot allow the many good things to marginalize the main thing. And that is our mission to make disciples for Jesus. That surprisingly is where the gospel of Matthew lands. And I say surprisingly because in a book that's so focused on Jesus's identity as this long awaited king that he really is the true Messiah, the king of heaven and earth. You might expect a book like that to land on this kind of triumphant note of victory. You know, Jesus has come. He has he has uh, uh, taken his throne through the cross. He's been vindicated in the resurrection. Let's rejoice. You might expect the book to land that way. But that's not how it ends. It doesn't end with a celebration or a party. It ends with a commission. It ends by telling us that the story is not over yet. That we as followers of Jesus have work to do. The passage before us is Matthew's main application of the entire gospel. Of all that we've learned about who Jesus is and his identity as our king and our savior. Here's Matthew's main application. Our participation in the mission that Jesus gives his church to go and make disciples of all nations. So what does that mean? What does that entail? How can we be faithful to that call personally, but then also as a congregation? That's what I want us to think about as we look at these verses. The conclusion of Matthew, what's been called the Great Commission. So let's pray and ask the Lord to meet us in his word. Lord, thank you that your promise is true, that you will be with us always to the very end of the age. And Lord, we pray that you would make your presence known now as we look into your word, that we would hear your voice, that your spirit would change our hearts, that you would help us to see this world and our place in it the way that you see the world, the way that you see us. Give us grace to be faithful to your call. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
So the past couple of weeks, we've know, we've seen how Jesus claimed his throne, not by avoiding suffering, but by going through it and triumphing over it. That's how he proves that he really is the king that he's been saying he is all along. Not by coming down from the cross, as all the crowds taunted him to do, but by staying on it and giving his life as a ransom for the forgiveness of sins for many. The punishment, as, as, as Pastor Bruce explained during communion earlier, the punishment that we deserved was poured out on Christ in our place. That we might be forgiven if we trust and follow him. So the battle has been won against sin. Sin has been defeated at the cross. And then something really crazy happened. He conquered death, too, by rising from the grave, just like he said he would. And that's not necessarily shocking to us. We're we're used to celebrating Easter every year and talking about the resurrection and thinking about the fact that, you know, Jesus rose from from the dead and such. But so so it kind of feels like no big deal to us. But it was a big deal. It was a very big deal to the disciples. This was a category breaker. This was earth shattering. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that he had power and authority over death itself, that changes everything. Changes everything. And you can see in our passage how when they finally see the resurrected Christ, they have a hard time taking it all on board. Now look at look at Matthew twenty eight, sixteen through seventeen. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped. But some doubted. It's interesting to note the tension in their reaction. I mean, when you meet the risen Lord, you cannot help but worship. And yet some doubted. You know, we think of Thomas, you know, the Gospel of John. But another way to, to translate that is, is that some hesitated. You know, it's the picture of basically they're having a hard time taking this all on board, making sense of it all. But Jesus did, in fact, rise as we made the case last week. And as our crucified and risen king, he calls his disciples together before he returns to his father in heaven and gives them a mission. That's how the book lands. Notice how Matthew draws attention to the place where Jesus called them to gather. He says it's on a mountain, which kind of like, hmm, yeah, lots of mountains in the Bible. But think about what happens on mountains in the Bible. As one author explains, you know, from Sinai to the Mount of Transfiguration to the Sermon on the Mount, mountains are places where the most important instruction or revelation is given. And this scene is no different. Jesus has brought his disciples together one last time for something truly significant. Our marching orders as a church. Second, notice that before he actually gives his orders, he grounds them in his authority. In his universal authority. Verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, authority is a, is a pretty touchy subject today. 
many of us kind of bristle at the idea that somebody might actually have a right to tell me what I can and can't do. We don't like that. And yet all of us recognize it at a certain level. You know, your teacher has the authority to tell you when your papers do. And you cannot go up to them and say, you know, I've decided that the due date's actually pushed off two weeks. You know, good luck with that conversation. If a police officer pulls you over for speeding, you can't hand him a ticket for making you late to work. You don't have the authority to do that. He has the authority to give you a ticket, though. You can't tell him that by decree of me, the speed limit here is now 60, not 35. It's not going to work. The governing authorities of our state and of our country have the right to collect taxes from us. It's a right we gave them as we the people, though we wonder sometimes how much they listen to us. But, but they have the authority to do that and to enforce it when we don't comply. Now, their authority is limited. They can't tell me what kind of car to drive or where to go to college or, or what kind of job I should have. There's a limit to the scope of their authority. And there's a limit to their jurisdiction. Our government cannot tax the citizens of France who live and work in France. That's outside their jurisdiction. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. There is no limit to the scope and jurisdiction of his authority. There is no part of life that is outside his right to rule. He has the right to tell us how to live down to the very detail. He's the creator. He's the savior. He is the king of heaven and earth. That's a pretty sweeping claim. Somebody walked in here and said, I got all authority in heaven on earth. Nobody would, you know, I don't know what would happen, but it probably would be awkward and ugly. That's a, it's a sweeping claim. In fact, if the man Jesus is not also at the very same time fully God, this is a blasphemous claim. He's claiming something for himself that can only be true if he is at the very same time fully God as he is fully human. But that's exactly what he's been claiming about himself throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew. Back in chapter 7, the crowds are amazed because Jesus taught as one who had authority. He spoke on the Sermon of the Mount as though he were God. He taught with authority. In chapter 9, he's the one who has the authority to forgive sins. That was a mind blower for them because only God has the authority to forgive sins. What do we do with this guy? In chapter 21, he teaches and he heals with God's authority, the authority of heaven. Every time he refers to himself as the son of man throughout this gospel, he's alluding to a passage back in Daniel 7, this visionary portrait of one like a son of man who endures suffering and then is presented before God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and, quote, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here is one like a son of man who receives 
universal authority from God the Father in heaven. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's the king of heaven and earth. But notice what he does with that authority. He gives us our marching orders. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go, therefore. Therefore, following out of the fact that he has all authority. Therefore, go in light of my universal authority and make disciples of all nations. Again, there's universal authority. All nations. There's nothing outside the scope of his rightful rule. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Our crucified and risen king exercises his universal authority by sending his church into the world to make disciples of all nations. That is incredible. And you think about it. It's terrifying and wonderful all at the same time. That Jesus exercises his authority by sending us. As he says in John 20, verse 21, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You know, we, we celebrate the advent of Christ at Christmas, his incarnation. The Father sent him. But as the Father sent him, so he is sending us. So, so what are we to do with that? What are our precise objectives? There are four verbs in verses 19 to 20. Those are action words for those of us who left grammar behind a happy long time ago. So go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. Four verbs. One of these is the main command, grammatically speaking. Make disciples. The other three help us understand what that main command entails. Going, baptizing, and teaching. And so let's look at the central command first. To make disciples. That's the core of our commission from our king. What does it mean to make a disciple? Well, very simply, it means Helping somebody become a follower of Jesus. That's what it means. The word disciple means learner or even apprentice. It's, it's someone who commits their way to following and becoming like their master. That's a disciple, a follower. And our goal is to make followers of Christ. Well, how does somebody become a disciple of Jesus? You believe the gospel of Christ. You believe the message that God is God and we are not. That he had a plan and a vision for his creation, which we messed up through our sinful rebellion. Because of that, we're deserving of his holy wrath and condemnation. But in his love, he sent his son to live for us the life that we were supposed to live but couldn't. And then to die for us the death we deserved on the cross, that our sins might be forgiven, that, that all of the Father's 
righteous and holy anger against our sin would be completely exhausted and spent on Jesus in our place. And then he rose from the dead on the third day and now sits at the right hand of his father and offers new life and forgiveness and salvation to everyone who turns to him in faith. To become a follower of Jesus, you believe that gospel truth. You believe that message. You enter into relationship with Jesus by faith. It's not a message of trying harder or trying to make it up to God for all the ways that I've messed up to him. Um, It's a message that says Jesus has already done everything necessary to reconcile you to the Father. You don't have to add to it. In fact, you can't add to it. All you have to do is take hold of him in faith to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. That's the gospel, to trust in Christ. And when you believe that gospel, you become a disciple, a follower of Jesus. So how does somebody believe the gospel? How do we help them do that? Well, two things have to happen. First, they have to hear it. They have to hear the good news. The gospel is a message that must be spoken. It must be talked about. It must be proclaimed. As much as we like the idea of just kind of simply, you know, proclaiming Jesus by the way I live my life. You know, I'll use words if necessary, but I'm just going to love people. And, and you need to love. Our love should be genuine. You need to, you know, the gospel should, should show itself in the way that we live our lives. But if words are never spoken, the message is never going to get across. I've used this illustration several times, but, you know, you may be the most punctual, uh, good-natured, kind, faithful, loyal employee at your business place. But nobody is going to conclude from that fact that, wow, you know what? They're such a great worker. I'll bet Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose from the grave and that if I trust him, I can have new life. People are not going to connect the dots that way. They need to hear the message of Jesus. It must be proclaimed. The gospel must be heard, therefore it must be proclaimed. And so to make disciples, we must necessarily tell people about Jesus. That's why evangelism and missions is so central to the advance of God's kingdom. Paul says in Romans 10, But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed, And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So to become a disciple, the gospel must be heard and believed. But second, the spirit of God must give new life and faith for that to happen. There is a spiritual element at work that you and I are not in control of. Jesus says in John 6, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. And so we can't save ourselves. God has to show up. God has to open eyes and and hearts in order to receive that message. And so the second thing we must do is pray. We must be praying for those that we're sharing with. Pray for those that we're speaking to, for opportunities to love them and share with them and serve them. 
but most of all to pray that God would open their eyes so that they could see him and believe. Our essential mission, the main thing God sends us into the world to do, is to make disciples, to help others turn away from sin and become followers of Christ. There are a lot of good things we can give ourselves to, but if we're not doing the main thing, we're failing the mission. We're failing the mission. So we must be praying, we must be proclaiming as we try to help people meet Jesus. But making disciples entails that a a few other things are happening as well. The next verb I want to consider is go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So to fulfill our mission, we can't just stay put. We must be going, actively engaging the world around us with the good news of Christ. Now, for the last century or so, uh, there's been a tendency, at least in the West, to think of the Great Commission almost exclusively in terms of foreign missions. So literally going to the ends of the earth, just as many people have done and as many people have gone out from our congregation to do as a vital part of our ministry. So the Great Commission is not less than that. That is essential and central. But it is more than that. If our charge involves making disciples of all nations, it must include foreign missions, all ethno-linguistic people groups. That requires radical going. But we should not conclude from that that the rest of us then just kind of get to sit the sideline and watch. And that's kind of what we've concluded, functionally at least. As long as I'm praying and giving some money, I'm making my contribution to the Great Commission. But Jesus' marching orders apply to everyone. You can't outsource your contribution to the Great Commission. Just hire in somebody else to do it for you. It doesn't work. Now, going does not necessarily mean going overseas or to a different culture. Though it might mean that for you. And I encourage you to be open if God were to call you to do that. There are still thousands of people groups with zero gospel witness on this earth. Zero. No one who knows Jesus or who is telling others about Jesus. We need to be radically going to make the gospel known. But the Great Commission does not necessarily mean that everyone does that, nor does it necessarily mean that I must go into vocational ministry. Some of you might be called to do that. Most of you probably aren't. Going means going to the grocery store, going to school, going to work, going across the street, street, going out for coffee, wherever you are going, that's your mission field. Whoever you are rubbing shoulders with, those are the people you're to be praying for and proclaiming the gospel to. To make disciples, we must go. It's an active, intentional engagement, not a passive, I'll just kind of hang out here and see if anybody shows up. But being a disciple is not just about entering relationship with Jesus. It's not just about, you know, the proverbial get out of hell free card. 
A disciple should be connected and committed. And that's what the next verb is about. Baptize. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So baptism is a special ceremony that marks our union with Christ in his life, his death, his burial and resurrection. And therefore, it marks our communion with each other in the body of Christ, in the church. It's the picture of, and many of you have seen this, it's the picture of going down into the water, into that watery grave, dying with Christ, dying to self, dying to sin, dying to this world, and then coming up out of the water, being raised with Christ to a new life a new identity, a new king, a new family. We now belong to the God whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's one of the earliest Trinitarian references. uh, It's right on the lips of Jesus here. Discipleship is not individualistic. It requires connection. Connection to Jesus and to his body, to a local church. It's highly relational. It also requires commitment, again, to Jesus ultimately, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, but also commitment to a local church and her leaders whom Jesus has placed authority for the guarding and shepherding of souls. It's interesting to see that in the Great Commission, Jesus has woven baptism into it, which which reminds us of what he said back in chapter 16, that he's not just saving individuals, he's building his church. There's something communal and corporate about the advance of the gospel, about the Christian life. And baptism is a sign and a seal of that connection and that commitment. It's a a public declaration that I am not my own anymore, that I belong to Jesus, I have died, I'm a new creation, I have a new family, and my life is never going to be the same. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And it's something all Christians are called to. The New Testament doesn't really know an unbaptized Christian. I mean, baptism does not save you. You you have the thief on the cross who, who trusts in Christ and doesn't have a chance to be baptized and Jesus assures him, today you'll be with me in paradise. But it's a command for those who trust in Christ to to have their lives marked by their union with Jesus and their communion with his people as a public declaration that they belong to him. And so just as an aside, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've not been baptized, let's talk. Let's talk. You need to, to think carefully about obeying his command. And it's a big deal. It's not a little deal. But it's a big deal Jesus calls you to. And and let's talk about that if that's you. A disciple of Jesus should be both connected and committed. But a disciple should also be changed. A disciple should also be changed. And that's what the fourth verb is talking about, teach. Verse 19 again. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
A commitment to follow Christ is a commitment to learn and obey. It's a commitment to learn and obey. It's a commitment that, to treat Jesus as king. And that both requires and results in change, in transformation, my life being changed to conform to him. Author Francis Chan writes, It's impossible to be a disciple or follower of someone and not end up like that person. Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's the whole point of being a disciple of Jesus. We imitate him, carry on his ministry, and become like him in the process. So a disciple should be changed. And the only way that we become like him is to spend time with him. Learning what he has taught and how to obey it, how to keep it. That means to be a follower of Jesus is to be a lover of scripture. It's to be a lover of the Bible. You cannot know Jesus today without knowing the Bible that reveals him to us. This entire book centers on Christ. You want to know Jesus? Get to know him here. The, the law and the prophets were fulfilled by him, the Old Testament. The message of the apostles is him, the New Testament. He's the centerpiece of the whole thing. To sit at our master's feet is to sit with our Bibles open. In prayerful communion, seeking God to change us by the Spirit. To follow our master's ways is to obey the Bible and put it into practice. Listening, learning, to observe everything he's commanded us. Surrendering our ways to his ways. Serving his kingdom, not mine. Persevering through suffering and trial. Depending on his spirit, not my flesh. Clinging to the cross. And the more that we do that, the more that we spend time with him in communion and obeying him in action, the more we become like him. The more we are changed by the Spirit. And that's the ultimate goal of discipleship. It's not really what you and I get out of discipleship. That's not the point. Though there's nothing better. The ultimate goal is that we would increasingly do what we were made to do. To reflect the beauty and glory of our Creator and Savior and King. That we would look like Jesus and how we live and, and what we say. That we would always be a display of his grace, a picture of his righteousness. That we would honor him with our entire lives. That we would become mature. Building one another up, as Paul puts it. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That that when the world looks at us, they would see how amazing Jesus is. That's the goal of discipleship. Go, teach, baptize, make disciples. That's a tall order. 
It's an intimidating call. And you read it, and you're kind of like, how's that possible? It, it, the king of the universe is going to exercise his authority by sending me. <laughs> I think he needs to go back to the drawing board on that one. How is this possible? How can we be the way that his kingdom advances? Notice how he secures his commission in verse 20. How he guarantees its fulfillment. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The success of the Great Commission doesn't ultimately depend on you and me, but on Jesus. He's using us, and you could be part of that or not. But it ultimately depends on Jesus and his presence. The Gospel of Matthew opened with the nativity story, identifying Jesus as Emmanuel, as God with us. It closes on that very same note. Jesus is with us. I am with you to the very end of the age. He is with us for the long haul. Until our mission is completed and he returns. He is with us by his spirit. You know, when, when the gospel of Luke ends, Jesus instructs his disciples to stay in the city. Don't, uh, here's your charge. Here's your orders. But don't go execute them yet. Stick around for a few days until you're clothed with power from on high. Until the Holy Spirit comes upon you at Pentecost. Jesus is with us by his spirit to guide us and guard us and give us the strength to do what he calls us to do. He has not left us as orphans. Though we sometimes may feel that way or act that way. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. To change us, to use us. And if you think about that, if the Holy Spirit can raise Christ from the dead... Can he not also give new life to those around us who are spiritually dead? Do I believe that? Am I praying for that? Am I taking seriously the power of God that is present among us for the fulfillment of his mission? Am I making that a priority? Our essential mission, the main thing Jesus sends us into the world to do, is to make disciples. To help others turn away from their sin and become followers of Christ. And so we need to ask ourselves personally and as a congregation, is that what drives us? Does that mark my life, this, this central call? Is that my modus operandi? Is that how I roll? That I'm always just seeking to make Jesus known? That it's always on my mind and my heart? If not, something's wrong. Something is out of whack in our lives or our ministries. Maybe it's a motivation issue. We're simply not compelled by the beauty and the importance or the urgency of the call. We haven't 
reflected on it enough or we've reflected on it and, and we're compelled by something different. Maybe it's a values thing. That there are other things we value more in life or even in church life than the main charge that we've been given. Maybe it's fear that holds us back. I know it is in my case very often. The fear of rejection, the fear of humiliation, the fear of repercussions. We have a hard time believing that Jesus actually meant what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. That blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Not sure I buy that one. Sorry, Lord. For some of us, maybe it's a submission issue when it just comes down to it, that we don't like someone else telling us how to live. I like the Jesus who saves me and gives me stuff. But the Jesus who calls me to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him and die, that's not what I signed up for. Let's not get crazy. If that's you then you need to be warned that the Jesus you're following is not the Jesus that God would recognize as his son. But I would guess, for most of us, we're simply not sure what to do. We don't know how to get started. We have a hard enough time reading the Bible personally or, or you know, reading it with our, our spouse or our kids that the idea of trying to do that with somebody else just feels overwhelming. What do I talk about? What do I read? What if they ask a question I don't know the answer to? It's so much easier just to invite them to church and let the preacher do all the preaching. And it's always a good thing to invite somebody to church. But the gospel is not going to go forward in New England that way. It's just not. Fewer and fewer people have any sort of category or value for church. And whatever association they do have, it's usually not very nice. Never hurts to try. Don't, don't be dissuaded from doing that. But don't think that that's how the gospel is going to advance in New England, if we can just get more people to church. If the gospel is going to grow in New England, it's going to grow through people like you, And you, and you, taking this commission seriously, following our king's orders, loving our neighbors, praying for them, building relationships, and taking the risk of inviting them to explore the claims of Jesus in Scripture. Now, we want to help you do that as a church. My job, Pastor Bruce's job, is not to do the work of ministry. According to Paul in Ephesians 4, our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's you all. When I came here three and a half years ago, one of my primary burdens at the time was to invest in personal discipleship, in equipping the saints for the work of ministry at an intentional, personal level. To be honest, I haven't had much of an opportunity to do that. 
And by God's grace, and if the Lord wills, that's going to change in 2015. We're going to continue to provide some broader-based types of training on this specific issue, disciple-making, spiritual multiplication. That's the theme and focus of our Life on Mission conference coming up next spring. So there is going to be broader-based type training. We're also going to give more focused prayer to our mission as a church. The last Sunday of each month, starting in January, we're going to be holding a prayer meeting that evening. Not to pray for our own needs and problems. Those are good things to pray for, and we want to pray for those, and and we need to keep doing that. But explicitly and specifically to pray for our mission as a church. Praying for the lost. Praying for opportunities. Praying for revival. Praying that God would come down and open eyes that are blinded to his beauty and his glory. That he would speak new life into hearts. Because there are thousands of men and women who live right next door to us that if nothing changes, are facing an eternity apart from Christ. And we need to pray. We need to plead with God to show up and do something. So we have to pray. The other thing I'm really excited about and praying about and want all of you to be praying about is that beginning in early 2015, both Pastor Bruce and I are going to be providing intentional discipleship coaching in a small group context, groups of three, with the explicit purpose of drilling deep in what it means to follow Christ and to give our lives away to make him known. We want to begin doing with you what we're hoping and praying you will be doing with others. That's the goal. Now, that doesn't mean that discipleship only happens in that kind of small one-on-one or one-on-two context. Discipleship happens whenever we're bringing the gospel of Jesus to bear on somebody's life. So our small groups, our home group ministry, discipleship is one of the core functions of that. Right now, even in a large group, discipleship is happening as we uh, engage together. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And so it's not the only way that it happens, but it is an essential way that we connect in that smaller, more intimate, life-on-life level because that's where change often really happens. When you can just be honest and put your junk on the table and look at the Word and say, what's going on here? What what does God say about this? And then learning, how do I turn around and do that with somebody else? That's the goal. We want to help you do that. And so I I want you to start praying. If that sounds interesting to you, to be able to get together with two other people and do business in the word and prayer for the sake of God's mission, if that sounds interesting to you, let's talk. Drop me an email. That's one of our key goals and desires as we move forward. And I'm convinced that if, if that isn't part of our culture as a church, we can talk about being missional all day long but it's never going to get traction if we don't have a culture of life on life in the word and prayer, giving our lives away, bringing the gospel of Jesus to bear on my life and on the lives of those I'm investing in. Would that 
that kind of personal ministry not be an exception here, but be the norm. Think about that. What might God do to raise a banner for his gospel at Westgate? If together we obeyed the Great Commission and gave our lives away for Christ. Jesus really is the king of heaven and earth. And he really has given us our marching orders. He sends us into the world to make disciples of all nations. And by his grace, may we be faithful to that call. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know our hearts. You know our stories. You know how our hearts are reacting to your word right now. For some of us, it's fear and anxiety. For some of us, it's guilt. I feel like I've dropped the ball. For some of us, it's anticipation and eagerness. Lord, your gospel, your saving grace through Christ is what gives perspective to all of those reactions. And so may your spirit speak into hearts that are afraid right now that we need not fear because you are with us. May your spirit speak into hearts right now that are feeling guilty that your blood is sufficient, that we are not measured by our performance for you, but by what Christ has done in his life and death, and that we are free to move forward and follow. And may your spirit speak into hearts that are eager to get to work, that you are with us, that your gospel is enough, that the flesh avails to nothing, but that your spirit gives life, and therefore we can trust you to do your work. We can believe that the God who raises the dead is able to give new life to the spiritually dead around us. And Lord, would you fill all of our hearts with that faith? Lord, you are king. We are not. We want to serve you. Thank you that you have done everything for us necessary for that to be possible. May we follow you, Jesus. Amen.